I have the pleasure of being with Dr. Rick Hansen today on Mind Rolling and uh, this wonderful new book that you have uh, written, Rick. I mean, it's, 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 it's maybe 10 podcasts we would get at <laughs> all the material, you know, and so much of it is so absolutely relevant uh, to what's going on here with this pandemic and so on and yeah. people's reactions to it and so so I'm, I'm really quite happy to be talking to you today about it. Um, it's called uh, Neurodharma. That's a beautiful coined <laughs> phrase. How did you get to that? I mean, well, for me, it, it's like there are two ways of knowing ourselves and, and helping ourselves from the inside out and the outside in. You know, inside out, that's the Dharma part, truth. Um, uh, really, it's my nod to the perennial wisdom of the ages. And then there's the outside-in, objective, third-person perspective of science, especially modern neurobiology, which is another way to know ourselves. And obviously, the Buddha did not need an MRI to become awakened, and nor do <laughs> you know many other people, right? Uh, On the other hand, wow, to me, it's it's so honoring of the you know the the Buddha's teachings, and more broadly appreciating underlying causes and conditions, and and really. And being truly embodied, really grounding mind in life, whatever may lie transcendentally beyond or distinct from ordinary conditioned reality. Otherwise, the experiences of a squirrel or a cat or a human are based on or grounded in as a cause and condition what's happening in the body. So to be able to start tapping into what's going on inside the coconut, right? <laughs> the three pounds of tofu inside tofu. the Tofu, yeah, I love yeah, that. Yeah, that's place. it. <laughs> uh, it just seems so useful. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. plus, it's so cool, right? Mm -hmm. It's so like, wow, what's going on in there? Yeah, and it's all here for us. Yeah. We don't yeah. have to go anywhere. That's um, right. Now, before we even talk about this and a little bit about you, uh, I have to bring up the book that you wrote, Resilience, on resilience. Right? I can't remember. Yeah. What's the title of mm -hmm. that book? Yeah, Resilient, as this Who We Become. Resilient, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm finding... This is such an extraordinarily important um, attribute for us to cultivate now. I've had, yeah. I've had a lot of thoughts around it over this last year, made a lot of big changes in my life. And I can't tell you how many times I would say, boy, this got to build up some resilience here. I find myself losing contact with that calmer, deeper place that I'm a little bit used to after, you know, all these years. I don't know if you, I think you know maybe that uh, I went back to India with Ramdas the second time he went back. Mm -hmm. No, uh, I didn't know that. Uh -huh. oh, cool. and, yeah. and so that's where I met, you know, out of all of that, met Sharon and, and Jack and, and Joseph, well, Joseph in particular. And uh, so I was a little bit taken aback, you know, by the affront that is happening to all of us and the mm -hmm. importance of resilience. Can you just talk about that a little bit? Because I think it's so, I mean, it's it's certainly part of everything that you're talking about with, uh, you know, uh, neurodharma. But, um, yeah, give us a little yeah. bit of a hand there on the resilience building. Well, you're naming such an important thing. I mean, in this 
in the Buddhist tradition, which is the one I most know, so it's the one I'm going to speak to, but not because I'm trying to pitch it or something, but, you know, equanimity, upekka in Pali, right? I bet there's a Sanskrit, you know, close cousin to upekka. Just the capacity, as people say, to walk evenly over uneven ground. Well, I love this phrase from Howard Thurman, the African-American minister in L.A., looking out upon the world with quiet eyes, no matter how noisy the world gets. Yeah. So how do we get that kind of resilience? Well, it's grounded in psychological resources of various kinds, you know, grit, gratitude, uh, core of underlying well-being, compassion and so forth. So we we grow those. Um, I think that uh, one of the takeaways from this time uh, for a lot of us, is to redouble our personal practice. You know, I, I find for myself that I'm motivated to practice when I'm feeling at my worst or my best, <laughs> or the world is at its worst or at its best. You know, it, it's interesting to appreciate how it's also when we feel at our best or the world's at our best that we kind of look at it and go, huh, you know, is this it, right? And then mm-hmm. that moves us to practice. So, though obviously we're moved to practice when, you know, the oatmeal's really hitting the fan. So I could talk about it and blather on a lot, but I'll just pause there. Mm. What do you What do you make of all that? How How do you What do you draw to to grow resilience in yourself? Well, similarly, and and certainly mindfulness is is so important. Uh, it allows us to to really be able to see more clearly uh, causes and conditions and be a little bit compassionate towards. So working. You know, Sharon's loving kindness meditations are really effective. Or more recently, Ramdas uh, coined loving awareness. You know, very, yeah. very similar. And uh, and what are the things I find that have connected me uh, on an immediate basis? As soon as I feel this loss of uh, being able to respond in a way that's um, intelligent rather than in the knee-jerk reaction that we humans seem to be really, uh, we lean towards, which is avoidance. Yeah. And uh, so I find nurturing that part, which is more intelligent, and looking and being more accepting. accepting. And and in this new book, you you know, you you talk a lot about Mm. that, and and that's uh, really important. But, uh, you know, for everybody out there, uh, this, uh, the ability to just find that place in oneself that has all of the natural inclinations to be okay with suffering, okay with uncertainty, you know, these are the, the for me, this is what makes up resilience. Mm. I find, I, I mean, I agree with all that and, uh, it's kind of weird to say it. So I have a lot of background in wilderness, in rock climbing and the mountains, mm. including in really severe conditions sometimes. And and I find that the body memory of what I drew on and grew inside to get through those times, you know, is really kind of moving to the forefront. And it might sound sort of morbid, but I've thought recently about a book I read a while ago because I like survival stories. Mm. Who lives, who dies? That's the title of the book. (laughs) Yeah. And the people who live usually are the ones who can, as you were saying, in a sense, kind of find some calm, find some strength, find their footing in the middle of it all rather than being overwhelmed by it. And I'd say for myself that 
lately, I guess I've just been really drawn into two things that seem weirdly effective. One is where you just sort of feel like you're you're kind of opening out into everything that is. It sounds woo-woo, but you just realize this is a big thing, right? It, there's a lot going on here, a lot of factors. It's, it's sort of like, you know, in a sense, the fullness emptiness place combined where you sort of, you just, yeah, and you could do it in your body. You could feel the left side of your body, the right side of your body, then left and right together. Uh, mm-hmm. And then you can just sort of open out. There's something really calming about that. And so part of the book involves what could be going on in the brain underneath it all, that those practices of wholeness and allness are so effective. So I find that really helpful to me, just to see the bigger picture, to put it in perspective, mm-hmm. to kind of open out into all that. And the other thing that personally I draw on is this freaking scruffy, gritty, I'm going to get through this. You know, this ain't going to kill me, right? This ain't going to kill the people I care about. And don't be an asshole, you know, <laughs> with that kind mm. of scruffy, gritty quality. But that sort of mm, moxie, you know, maybe has a little fieriness to it. Uh, but, but also within it, patience. You know, one of the paramis, right? Of course, one of the perfections, patience. It sounds like such a homely virtue. And, and yet it's so fundamental. It's so profound just to endure, mm. to endure. Mm. Right. I will still be here after this storm passes. Uh, might be a little battered <laughs> by it, but mm, I'm going to be here still. Mm. Uh, you were just that grit that you're talking about reminds me. And sorry, everybody out there listening. I've told this story quite a few times, but this particular uh, quality is super important. And Rick is saying it and he's saying it in a different way. And it's a story that Krishnadas, I think you know who Krishnadas is. Yeah, yeah. I listen to him routinely. <laughs> and uh, so one day he was with our guru, Neem Karoli Baba, and they were just, they were with another Indian man uh, in Mumbai, actually. And suddenly, Maharaji goes to Krishnadas, courage is a very important thing, something like that, right? Courage. And the Indian man said, no, what are we talking about? You know, we're, we're in the tradition of uh, bhakti yoga, right? Yoga of devotion. He says, no, the guru, guru kripa, guru's grace. No, the, it's just all about grace of the guru. You know, he's telling Neem Karoli Baba this. And, and uh, he turns, uh, Neem Karoli Baba turns back to Krishnas and points his finger again and says, courage is a very important thing. He completely dismissed this, this other thing. Now, you know, Krishnadas said at that point, he was telling the story a few years ago, for the rest of my life, I had that as something to draw from. Mm. And, uh, and who, whoever's heard this story uh, yeah. is, is uh, you know, it's, it's very, very important part mm. of, and look what's going on right now. You know, I mean, it's, 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 yeah, grit, <laughs> got to be a little bit of grit. And that falls back for me to resilience, right? Exactly. Exactly. And that. courage like heart. Yeah. It, that's another thing to, to, to take heart, to have heart. Uh, I, I wrote a thing recently about getting through all this. And, and one of the parts of it uh, had to do with taking heart in 
all the frontline people, all the people pushing brooms in hospitals at two in the morning, mm-hmm. you know, all the people driving buses today at great risk to themselves. Um, everyone around the world, all the all the parents at home with their kids now <laughs> trying to both work at home while taking helping their kid get through fourth grade or 10th grade, et cetera. Uh, take heart. We can take heart in Sangha, in a sense, the community altogether. Uh, so to me, courage, you know, the root of it obviously is heart and so on. Um, that's an aspect of courage is to take heart in the efforts of other people. Yeah. And, uh, and I think we should say, uh, this is not a matter of courage coming from here, from the yeah. ego mind, right? It is not that it is the heart. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think that's real important. So, yeah. um, how about a little bit about you? I mean, I always like to know who I'm sure. when I'm talking to somebody. You you grew up, I, you know, it, and you talk about it in the book as you grew up yeah. in a very relaxed family, shall we say? I don't know if that's the right word for it, but and you uh, at some point started looking around mm-hmm. and going, "Geez, what the heck is going on here?" <laughs> you know, it's funny because. Uh, do you know who Adyashanti is? Oh, yeah, very right. much. Again, yeah. much respect for him. Yeah, yeah. much respect for him. Uh, I talked to him at one point, and he said a very similar thing. He said, I just couldn't understand what the heck was going on with these adults, the way that they behaved and the the emotions and out of sorts and anger and all of the, you know. And uh, he said it wasn't until I was, what, I think he said eight or nine or something, when he had a little bit more formed uh, wisdom, shall we say, or understanding more than wisdom. And he said to himself, I know what's going on. These people believe what, believe their thoughts, you know. <laughs> They're just reacting to anything that they think, you know, which led him into a, a, a meditative path when yeah. he was a teenager. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so I think there's some similar similar kind of thing there. But talk about, yeah, growing up and, and what mm. happened to lead you where you are now. Or yeah. just to understand there was a path. Deep question. I think for a lot of people, so I'm, a, as you know, I'm a psychologist, psychotherapist, and sometimes I plumb the depths of people's childhoods with them. And, you know, it's kind of, and I've worked a lot with kids and we've raised two kids to adulthood now. And I think that, we underestimate what kids know. They can't put it into words, but we knew stuff. So I can say that in my earliest memories uh, that include a fair amount of sort of turmoil around me in a kind of C-minus situation I grew up in, not traumatic, far from relaxed. It was the opposite of relaxed. There was a lot of tension, partly generational from my parents' upbringing in the Great Depression through different re- for different reasons. And in my awareness as a little kid was this sense of a lot of unnecessary unhappiness, a lot of low grade, but chronic bickering, hassle, fault finding, finger pointing, tension, and also in the kids around me, not to, and I, up at the grownups and then grownups and kids and so on. And I didn't know why it was, but I knew it was just like, ah, oh, there was this background intuition somehow. It doesn't have to be like this. Mm. And then that led me on my way. I didn't know what to do about it. Um, by the time I went off to college, I was young through school. I really dove into the human potential movement um, in the, the early 70s, late 60s at UCLA. And that kind of set me on my way. I started meditating in 1974. Uh, I'd grown up as a casual Methodist, completely 
ordinary. Uh, I had a teacher, Adi Da, for a while, and he talked about sort oh. of downtown religion. Wow. Yeah, just very conventional, well-intended, but uh, there wasn't much juice there. And so when I started meditating in 74, and I, I became, I guess, most drawn to the penetrating simplicity and clarity of the Buddhist teachings. They seemed very um, right at the heart of it all, extracted from, particularly from, in a good translation, from a lot of cultural complexity, just kaboom. Just like you said early, it's here right now, this moment of, of hearing, seeing, tasting, wanting, loving, hating, kaboom. What's the nature of the experience we're having right now. Not just what are we experiencing, but what is the nature of what we're experiencing and our relationship to it. Whew, that totally set me on my way. Mm. That's where it really kind of started for me. Mm. Oh, so and the big word for me in what you just said, intuitive knowing. Yeah. Right. I think we we I can't tell you how many times we've talked about it in different retreats that we do that we have done before. Ramdas passed and are doing now since his yeah. leaving uh, about trust. One, mm. you connect with that intuitive knowing, yeah. and then you have a trust that develops. And through that trust, you can put one foot in front of the other. Without that trust, uh, you know, one can get a little bit lost. So, in, intuition to me, you know, connecting with that is uh, super important. And I guess I did so myself at that time. Uh, we have similar uh, backgrounds. That I think I had a little bit more of a fierce one than you, but that's my subjectivity, you know, with my uh, a dominant father, a tyrannical father, uh, yeah. who who followed me to India, Neem Karoli Baba, you know, <laughs> got me to give him acid. How about that? <laughs> and it dynamited him, and then we had a relationship. With the rest of wow. our lives, it's a whole great story. That's one way to do it. Yeah, <laughs> I couldn't believe it, but, um, yeah. but yeah, that trust is uh, is super super important. And yeah. uh, um, so, can, can, the, I, can I go back to that though? Just yeah, what you yeah. said there. So, yeah. as a therapist, um, do you just remind me of something? I think that as kids, many kids have this fateful choice that was sort of implied in what you said about Adyashanti, in which they either think that they're crazy or the adults are crazy. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. Most kids make the understandable but wrong choice that they decide that they're crazy yeah. because that enables them to maintain a kind of attachment relationship. And I'm, I think what that gets at is how do we claim that intuitive knowing that no, they're crazy, no, they're sweet, they're well intended, they don't, they're not evil, and whoa, not me, not mine, right? Mm. Um, and I can say that one of the fundamental saving graces of my life is that by the time I was six, I, I knew it wasn't me. I still had to deal with a lot of crud. You know, I accumulated many feelings of inadequacy and worthlessness, loneliness. I was deeply awkward and then neurotic, right? But at some level, there was a knowing of what was actually true. So this goes into courage, right? How do we find the courage? Uh, I felt it was very central for many people to claim what we really know in our bones to be true. Because it can be really scary to claim that. You can feel alienated from others. If you reveal what you really know and feel to be true, they're going to crush you like a bug, right? Mm -hmm. It takes courage to really ooh, 
proclaim what you know to be true in your belly. Yeah, yeah. and many people do get crushed, terribly crushed. And uh, you yeah. have probably uh, treated many, many people with this particular trauma. And yeah. so, again, you know, trusting in, in that deep inner knowing is, is crucial. I mean, in terms of anybody I've seen and myself, never mind anybody And having else. the courage to trust in it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, let me just read uh, something from, from the book that gives everybody, give you all, us all an idea uh, every sensation, every thought and desire, and every moment of awareness is being shaped by three pounds of tofu-like tissue. I love that. Inside your head. <laughs> it's a great, I don't know if I'll ever be able to eat tofu again, Rick. Uh, the stream of consciousness involves a stream of information in a stream of neural activity. The mind is a natural phenomenon that is grounded in life. Major causes of both suffering and its end are rooted in your own body. Goes back to, it is all here. We can do something about this. So, you know, that, that's kind of a central premise for, for what you're talking about in this book. Um, I, I think since we're, we're talking a little bit about uh, youngsters and growing up and um, there, there's, uh, one of the chapters is when you were young and it's, um, uh, and it's about how the vulnerability of, uh, of us all in those first few years and, uh, the primal experiences, uh, which are neural triggers for experiences of stress and fear, the amalgam, I could never pronounce it. You've got to pronounce it. Amygdala? Amygdala is fully formed before most It sounds like over from India. Come on, you yeah. can do it. Come on, do it. Like amygdala. I don't speak Hindi that well now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, yeah, let, let's talk about that because that seems to be, I mean, this is something I've really been working on uh, over the last uh, few years, just the ways in which we really, uh, the causes and conditions and, and as far as I believe, not just this life, but what we bring in from past lives that we need to work out through karmic uh, eventuality, uh, that th these things are so um, sticky and penetrated to the deepest part of our bones almost, um, that it is very tough uh, to, to really, uh, A, understand, and B, transform. Hmm. Can, can you talk about just some of the realities of, of, of scientifically of what is happening uh, that forms these, you know, the fear, the painful emotions, the right. threats, all of it. And, and then we start to go, no. Oh, yeah. Well, deep, deep, deep. So as kind of a frame, um, personally, so the... I, I do think that there are supernatural matters that might include reincarnation, you know, discarnate beings, you know, just supernatural matters, as well as something ultimately transcendental. That said, clearly inside what people call the natural frame, which was the frame of reference that 
was in the sentences that you just read there. Mm. Uh, inside that frame, so I'm not trying to say this is all there is necessarily, but certainly it's a lot of what is. Okay. Mm. So, in in terms of what's happening in the toy in the tofu, it's being sculpted <laughs> in effect, literally physically by our experiences. There's this classic saying from the work of the Canadian psychologist Donald Hebb: neurons that fire together wire together has a kind of rhythm to it, right? I don't wanna, I wanna see a rap musical you know, organized <laughs> yeah, around that. that, but anyway. Um, and so the bottom line is that if, if you watch kids learn to walk instead of crawl or adults learn to be more patient or uh, become traumatized, right? As there are changes in mind, there must be changes in brain. By mind, I simply mean the totality of our experiencing, perhaps the smallest of which is intellect, okay? It's the totality of our consciousness. There must be underlying changes in our bodies, most, most, um, most of which are really inside the brain. So our experiences when we're young affect us intensely. Mm. If you said, to put it a certain way, we're designed to be changed by our, exper by our experiences, especially negative ones, especially negative ones in childhood and especially especially negative ones in childhood that involve other people. We are designed to learn from those experiences and it's no wonder that we're affected. People say, oh, why don't you get over it? It was you know, your childhood. <laughs> well, yeah. that's the hardest thing to get over of all. That said, with bhavana, with cultivation, uh, we can gradually uh, shift our relationship to what are to our reactions, they still arise, but we're not so identified with them. Uh, we're less hijacked by them. We recover to that resilient well-being baseline faster. And then over time, more and more, the triggers occur and they don't move the needle so much. And eventually, you know, they don't move the needle at all. And I'm really interested myself in that process of cultivation. I mean, if I actually could have written a different title, it would have been Neurobhavana, you know, the yeah. process actually yeah. of how cultivation really proceeds and how we can help it really happen inside us. But it's very hopeful. You know, on the one hand, there's compassion for our suffering and how we're understandably really affected by our experiences. We're designed to be physically affected by them. And on the other hand, it's really hopeful that we can help ourselves grow a little and let go a little and become a little wiser, a little happier every day. Yeah. It, and, and you say in the brain, trauma, <laughs> you have some nice little uh, turns of phrases here, Rick. In the, in the brain, trauma, an ordinary neurotic crud. <laughs> What's ordinary <laughs> are embedded in neural circuitry, which takes time to alter. Developing happiness, emotional intelligence, and a loving heart also requires gradual physical changes. What are we talking about there? Uh, you're, so, <clears throat> kind of a quick summary. You're talking about new connections forming among the 85 billion or so neurons inside our head. Mm. Uh, talking about uh, existing connections getting stronger or weaker based upon, let's suppose that a person wants to become calmer and stronger and more contented uh, over time, which I do. Right. I'm still kind of on the path myself. Uh, that process of calm and contentment and compassion, let's say, not too bad, the big three, right? <laughs> um, uh, 
you know, that involves actual changes in the brain. And increasingly, scientists are measuring those in terms of less reactivity in certain ways and greater resourcefulness in other ways. Another thing that happens is you start shifting ebbs and flows of neurotransmitters, less dopamine, uh, let's say, that rewards us for addictive craving and more, let's say, um, oxytocin or natural opioids that support the felt sense of heartfelt contentment already. That changes. You also get changes in gene expression. And I don't know if you know this part. Scientists are now discovering, literally, uh, the ways in which the experiences of one generation changes the expression of genes in the second generation, hmm. independent of uh, upbringing or other factors, uh, particularly identified with invasive studies on rats and other animals, but you can find this in humans as well. And then those changes of expression can be passed down to the third generation based on the experiences of grandparents, which has a lot wow. of implications for generational trauma in populations mm. like you know, in America, Af you know, people of color, Jews, clearly, mm -hmm. uh, who are, are carrying literally the the impacts mm. of the experiences their their great grandparents have had. This, these are not changes in the genes specifically, but in the expression of genes. Uh, for example, people who are highly stressed uh, tend to have children who are less able to e express genes that calm down the stress response. You know, mm. through literally that epigenetic pathway, uh, the next generation gets more reactive. And then they, when they have kids, they can pass along that sensitivity to reactivity to their own children. So, you know, one way I think about all this is we practice for others, too, in lots mm. of ways, including generationally. Oh, okay, that, no, I, I that is not uh, something that I have been aware of. And uh, that's a fantastic <laughs> Um, promise, really, or a fantastic yeah. uh, possibility or reality, obviously, uh, that what we are doing is not just for little me to get yeah. better. That is, uh, that's really wonderful. Wow. It is really cool. And it's one of the many um, aspects of, of the ways in which I think, uh, though I call it, you know, uh, you know, practicing with the brain in mind, mm -hmm. in effect, that we just take it into account. And one of the benefits of this is that it's motivating, mm. yeah. motivating for yeah. practice, right? Yeah. Yep. When you know that you're actually physically changing the hardware, suddenly it seems more real, it's a, it's <laughs> especially a, for some people. Yeah. Uh, it's a bit yeah. of the bodhisattva vow engaging mm -hmm. in, I am not going to leave until everyone is free yeah. of suffering. And you start to, if you, you know, this is something to realize. And as you say, a motivating factor um, actually is very enheartening. I mean, it's a yeah. fabulous, fabulous thing. Um, so now you've done all this work. Uh, I think it's, it's great to maybe understand a little bit, not to get too, in, too much into the weeds of the science of this, but... Am I correct? It is possible to change those n pathways, right? Yeah. So that uh, it 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 in effect actually is it's not a pie in the sky thing. 
that when you actually do the kind of work that is being suggested in your book here, mm-hmm. that there is a change. This is not, uh, oh, well, maybe. Talk about that. I mean, it, it's a reality. Yeah. Um, there's a lot about this. So one part is that we are surrounded by evidence of mental change, change of people's mind and heart and, you know, like how they experience things, how they are, how they feel. There's tons of research on formal interventions like psychotherapy or mindfulness training or self-compassion training, gratitude training. There's a lot of research on that. Plus, we're surrounded by examples of other people we've known who over time have become less of an asshole, <laughs> let's say, you know, like my father, he was, he was well-intended. He grew up on a ranch in North Dakota. Uh, he became a scientist and raising me, he was pretty uptight and mm-hmm. anxious and controlling and worried and so forth. He definitely changed as he got older. And I still remember him in his 90s hooking up with this hot young lady who was in her <laughs> 80s. You know, and oh. at some point in that relationship, he said, hey, Rick, I, I think we she and I ought to go to therapy. So, you know, and that was the last thing from his own background he would ever think about. So we're surrounded by this evidence. Well, if the mental changes are evidence of neural changes. We don't need an MRI to know that. We don't need an EEG to know that because we're otherwise we're left with magic. So if there are changes in a person's psychology, they're becoming more patient over time, more mindful over time, more loving over time. There must be underlying changes in the body. Part one. Part two, these days increasingly with invasive studies on non-human animals flagging the ethical issues there and then not invasive studies on college sophomores, the great guinea pigs, right, of social (laughs) science. Uh, You can observe with imaging technology physical changes occurring in the brain within minutes based on the experiences people are having. And over longer periods of time, maybe I'll summarize for you, like four major changes in the brains of people who are kind of long-time meditators. They don't have to be monks or nuns doing it all the time, but just, you know, kind of mindfulness meditators loosely detail. There uh, is, there's a lot of overlap between different kinds of meditation, different kinds of practice, but there's also some differences and you can find these differences even in the brains of people who do different forms of practice, which is pretty interesting. But let's just kind of keep it simple at the core of it. Four major changes in the brain of people who, you know, um, practice, you know, kind of sloppy, realistic practice, you know, <laughs> 20 minutes here, yeah, skip a day, uh, 40 minutes there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm a the day-to-day sloppy, but okay. Yeah, yeah, the one-minute the one minute meditator. So really quickly here, one, <clears throat> greater control over attention. Understandably, neurons that fire together, wire together. You work that muscle of regulating your attention, returning your awareness, refocusing. You literally strengthen neural circuitry that that regulates attention, mainly right behind the forehead, you know, the prefrontal areas that do that. All right. Second, body awareness, much more awareness of the body. So parts of the body, especially it's called the insula. Uh, We have two of them, a part of the brain. That's what we draw upon when we tune into our gut feelings and and we tune into our bodies as a Interesting and useful little detail is people deepen in body awareness and literally their insula gets thicker because there's more connections among neurons and also more capillaries bringing blood to the insula. You're working the muscle literally gets bigger. People become more empathic mm-hmm. for others. 
mm. as they deepen in their awareness of their own bodies. That's mm. a good benefit. Third, um, emotional regulation. There is a greater regulation of the amygdala, <laughs> the alarm bell of the brain, and uh, strength, uh, increased circuits, as it were, in nearby region called the hippocampus that calms down the alarm bell, puts things in perspective, uh, as well as other things going on in the brain that help us stay more resilient, stay calmer and more rested in positive well-being. And last, uh, the sense of self. There's less activity in the default mode network where there's a lot of sense of me, myself, and I, mm -hmm. my precious, right? Yes. And there's more of this kind of uh, activation that's more global, that's more holistic. You, you feel like a person as a being process, but less of a sense of, you know, me. Mini me. I call yeah, it mini me. me. Yeah, exactly yeah. right. Yeah, those are four major changes mm -hmm. that are really found reliably that uh, in which there's underlying structural and functional change in the brain that supports those changes of mind. Mm -hmm. Now, as you were talking about your father just earlier in he was 85, 90, whatever, met, you know, yeah. <laughs> sweet young woman. And I, I, I mean, that is so much my father. I can't even tell you. I mean, we must have yeah. similar things going on there. But I will say, in my father's case, he needed that magic that he got from Nick Crowley. <laughs> the magic pill. Yeah. yeah and the shock to pot. Yeah. The boink. Yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, just so everybody knows, uh, there is this book is uh, chock full of uh, very, very helpful practices. This isn't just a pedantic, this is what, you know, neuroscience says. This is okay. Get down and do it. And oh, uh, thank you. That's really true. Yeah, yeah. And uh, something that I really—I mean—that's a, a major, obvious premise in terms of the get down and doing it is letting be, letting go, and letting in. So, give us a little of that, Rick, because I think that's that—that's the uh, modus operandi here for people to to change these traits that we are so stuck on. It's really great that you're zeroing in on the heart of the matter. I mean, I really appreciate it that you've done that, you know. And uh, so for me, that framework you just said is so useful because it summarizes how to practice. Mm, like I'm a, exactly. I'm a practice guy. Yeah. Mm. I mean, I love the science. I, I just – it's so interesting. But at the end of the day uh, – to me, it's about practice. What are we going to do, right? To be a little Absolutely. less miserable. Yeah, a little less miserable yeah. at the end of the day than when we started. And a, a little, little bit wiser. kinder as yeah. well. Exacto mundo. So how do we practice, right? And uh, primary mode of practice is to be with what's there. We feel the feelings. We experience the experience. You know, maybe we explore it. Maybe we sense into what's younger and more vulnerable under the surface, like hurt beneath anger. Maybe we... Um, have insight, vipassana, into the nature of the experience we're having. Uh, in the process of that, sometimes what we're experiencing changes. You know, the unhappiness eases, the reactivity eases, the addictive craving maybe passes away. Uh, but we're not directly trying to nudge it. We're not making efforts in our mind to nudge our experience one way or another. I think that's the primary mode of practice. It's uh, sometimes all we can do, uh, just ride out the storm, bear the pain. And as 
our practice matures, you, and you see this in people who are very far along, they're more and more, they're just resting in being with what's arising mm. as it passes away radically and continuously uh, with, a, with a whole heart. Uh-huh. But it's not the only form of practice, and I think it's gotten overvalued. I think it's become almost dogmatic and ideological mm. in some quarters. Like, just witness the stream of consciousness. That's all you have to do. Just keep noting. Just keep witnessing. Just keep witnessing. I don't think that's what the great teachers teach, and I don't think that's what modern science tells us about the way the brain actually changes over time. We need to work with the mind, not just be with the mind. And so working with the mind involves the two aspects of wise effort, really, where we're letting go, we're releasing tension from the body, we're letting go of thoughts, we're disidentifying from our reactive patterns, we're abandoning unwholesome desires and so forth, and we're letting in, we're cultivating bhavana, we're cultivating resilience and grit and wisdom and happiness along the way. I think of it like a garden. You can witness the garden, pull weeds, plant flowers, I tend to focus on the flower planting because I think it's been the forgotten stepchild of a lot of clinical psychology and a fair amount of spiritual practice. It's really important to focus on it. How do you actually move from states to traits? How do you actually develop positive traits hardwired into you that are not dependent upon your conditions, you know, your settings. One of the great teachings, I think, of this pandemic time is that many of us have been just sort of propped up by our activities and interactions Mm. and experiences. And when the music stops playing, you're left with whatever traits you've developed inside. That's what you can really draw upon. And um, for some people, it looks like an empty cupboard. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) It's like, okay, I got to start cultivating. Anyway, but for me, the cultivation part, just to finish, is in that larger context. Mm. It's not about positive thinking. It's not about rose-colored glasses. Actually, it's based on a kind of scruffy clarity that life sometimes sucks. And for some people, it sucks all the time, really. And the more it sucks, the more important it is to look for ways to grow the good inside, right? For your own sake and the sake of others. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it was very, you know, we talked about and how heartening it felt when when you started talking about the work that you do on yourself and how that can have uh, such profound results generationally is mm-hmm. extraordinary. And that starts to make you think about, gee, maybe it's not just a me, me thing all the time. We have this uh, uh, subjectively wonderful, because I produced it, a movie uh, that uh, came out of Ramdas called Becoming Nobody, right? You produced that. I yeah. didn't know that. Yeah. Good for you. Thank you. And by the way, I, I have much gratitude and respect for Ram Dass, you know, mm, yeah. blessings on yeah. his name. Yeah. Um, so, but my favorite part in the whole movie, okay, and there's great stuff about identity, how, you know, the causes and conditions around identity and roles and uh, all of that and moving out of that. And, and then he suddenly says, and again, I'm repeating to everybody out there. When is what I want enough? When is what I need enough? It's much more interesting to think about others. Think about service, right? And and it also makes me think of His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. You know, kindness is my only religion. And you have a you know a section in here. 
uh, compassion and kindness. And very simply, you say, compassion is wishing that beings not suffer, and kindness is wishing that they be happy. Uh, Bob Thurman once, uh, I think you know, you know yes. Bob, uh, at, a, at a retreat, you know, he talked about uh, the definition of love is the wish that all beings be happy. And mm-hmm. as wishes, these are, for, you say, as wishes, these are, so this is, we're going into something else here, which I think is sure. really important. Yeah. As wishes, these are forms of desire, right? Nasty yeah. word. Yeah, but it's desire. Right. Got to get rid of that. Which, as you say, which raises an important question that we should address. Is desire okay? Talk oh, that. that's that, great stuff. Well, yeah, yeah so, um, <clears throat> wow, <laughs> so much about that. Uh, part of what's there in the book, uh, even though I'm, you know, maybe my persona especially as a certain nice Midwestern (laughs) cultural (laughs) edge to it. Uh, There's a part of the book that honestly is a pushback against certain, in my view, problematic attitudes and and just finger-waving from some people in some quarters uh, that I just think is wrong. So, for example, desire per se is not the problem. It's what kind of desire pursued in what kind of ways with what kind of attachment to the results. That's kind of the crux of the matter. And obviously, wanting children to be fed is a wholesome desire. And I think it's okay to have values. I mean, in the ultimate, right, it's beyond good and bad, beyond right and wrong, blah, blah. That said, hello, even trying to not have values is a value. There's just no way around it. So that's part of embodiment. To me, that's part of just inhabiting our animal realness yeah. in, in which, of course, we want to be fed. And throughout the architecture of the body, even down at the cellular level, there are goals. There are aims, right? So there, you know, in, in Pali, the language of early Buddhism, there's tanha, which is the word for craving. And the second noble truth is probably no. And its root meaning is thirst. So in that form of desire, there's an underlying sense of something missing, something wrong. On the other hand, there's wholesome desire, chanda, which is grounded in a sense of enoughness already, fundamentally. It's not based on a drive state, right? Craving is a drive state in neuropsychological terms. So how do we disengage from drive states while still dreaming big dreams, speaking truth to power and howling at the moon on a Friday night with friends, Uh, right? So to me, that's the key distinction really. And one of the, uh, for me, under investigated ideas in um, the Dharma broadly in the spiritual traditions is what really is the source of craving, right? People can accept, it's almost like a needlepoint sampler on the wall. Suffering arises dependent upon craving, but they never go to the next step, which is upon what does, does craving arise, especially in an embodied way. So one of the things I've, I've personally, making it personal now, have found is so really interesting is to listen to the longings in your heart, actually, not push them away, much like we don't, it's important to not have the courage to not push away what you know to be true, to not push away the deep longings, and to actually satisfy them. But really make sure when you do that you feel it so you internalize 
the satisfaction of those longings. So gradually you satisfy those hungers for love, for connection, for a sense of accomplishment, a sense of efficacy, agency. You can actually make things happen. You satisfy them uh, through having and then especially internalizing wholesome beneficial experiences. So more and more you feel already full from the inside out and underlying embodied hormonal neurological causes of craving gradually fall away. You feel already contented as the next moment lands. And that's been really important for me, including dealing with my sense of worthlessness as a kid to, to actually let myself reach for, we call them narcissistic supplies, right? Mm. <laughs> uh, and to help myself like, okay, you like me. Oh, tell me more. <laughs> well, why do you, but not just, not like a junkie getting a fix. Uh, so you need another fix the next day, but to truly be vulnerable and intimate enough with that experience mm. to really receive it into yourself. So over time, that hunger falls away. Mm. Crucial stuff, as far as I'm concerned. And I'm yeah. so glad you brought this up uh, in, in the book and, and otherwise here. It's, it's just too much of the spiritual bypass that happens. Yeah. It, it just so so many of us at one time in our lives uh, have have done this, thinking they need to be. We need to be something that's pure, that's mm -hmm. unadulterated, that's unaffected, and uh, you know we pre presuppose something that's not human. You yeah, know? and yeah. to include desire in this case, yes, I want to be kind. I want to be compassionate. I want to be loving. You know, it's, it's, it makes all the sense in the world. And why should you not? And then to take it further, as you just did, realizing our humanness and realizing that, yes, we want to fulfill this, that, or the other. You know, obviously, as, as you say, it's not about being a junkie and getting lost in it. It's a matter mm -hmm. of having awareness around it. So I, I really love that. And, um, uh, the and that gets to the another attribute that mm. is uh, to me extraordinarily important. Uh, in fact, we did a whole retreat on it: um, a generosity, because uh, mm. it just takes you. It's like serving, as Ramdas yeah. said. It's much more interested interesting to serve. Once you do that, you stop yeah. being completely embedded in this mini me self-referential, as a, I love the Tibetan, self-cherishing kind of person, mm -hmm. generosity and service, you know, the, they, they fit together. And, and um, this is something that uh, is, is so lacking in this world right now. I think that we're all approaching it a little bit differently now with COVID. Yeah. Uh, because you can't help, you know, you see people going and feeding other people that can't get food, can't yeah. even go out from the fear and shouldn't be going out and so on. So uh, this is uh, and, uh, this is something I found. Uh, somebody wrote this beautiful thing around this the Chinese call this kind of chaos and uncertainty a dangerous opportunity. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that great? And, uh, and so, uh, but I do feel, uh, right, generosity has so many layers of importance in terms of our 
everybody we are around, who we are, and that generosity for ourselves. And you do talk about that in the book as well, talking about compassion for ourselves and so on. Yeah. Yeah, I, there are a couple parts of it. One is it, you know, kind of a weird, well, here we are, you and I, what are we? We're like two big freaking male monkeys, <laughs> you know, really. And um, it's it's really easy to lose sight of the ways in which humans are really strange <laughs> in many ways, <laughs> including yeah. both in the worst of us and the best of us. And one of those best parts is the ways in which our species has evolved very strong inclinations and capacities for altruism, for mm. generosity, for re including for those who are not our own, right? You, you, in a narrow, narrow way, our closest uh, cousins, the chimpanzees or bonobos, uh, will, you know, a mother will feed her child. She will not feed another monkey child, basically. Mm. Maybe there will be a little, little sharing of food after you know, the, the big dogs, the big monkeys have eaten, but very, very little. Definitely not helping others from another band, let's mm -hmm. say. Humans will jump into a river to risk their life to save someone else's dog that they yeah. don't know. Yeah. Complete stranger dog. You know, people during the Holocaust would shelter at enormous personal peril. Complete strangers for yeah. months, if not years at a time. And so what is that? You know, it, it's really quite profound. So... I have a feeling myself in my body. I mean, it's one thing to know this intellectually, but then you want to bring it down to the body. You know, I have a friend, Samuel Bonder, non-dual teacher, talks about waking down, not just waking up, to feel it in the body, this movement of generosity, mm. really, really deep. And then the question is, who are we leaving out? Who are we leaving out of that circle of generosity? And very often it's ourselves. Yeah, We, we don't have that where we want to be benevolent to them, kind toward them, compassionate toward them, but it's hard to be that way for ourselves. And it's weird. It's like a double standard. Uh, we would stand up for somebody else. Do we stand up for ourselves, right? Uh, if uh, I, someone quoted a teaching to me recently that if another person routinely treated us the way we treat ourselves, we would get that rid of that person from our life. <laughs> yeah. You know, that'd be yeah. that on that friend. We'd talk with them a few times. They kept doing it. We'd be done. You know, yeah. no, man, whatever. No more. But we keep doing it to ourselves, right? So to me, one of the takeaways here, which goes to the whole path of practice, is how can we help ourselves on this journey? You know, just a little bit, a little bit each day take, to take the next step, uh, to take heart in the journey. You know, to me, that there's a kind of sweetness, but also a muscular quality of being mm. on your own side, being for yourself, mm. right? In addition to being for other people. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we're getting close to uh, taking enough of your time, Rick. Yeah. Uh, it's but, been a real pleasure, yeah. Yeah, thank you. Um, I just noticed this thing in the book, and I had to include this because it harks to... Uh, yeah. What I've been involved with with Ramdas all these years, what many of us have been, and uh, mm. actually next year is the 50th anniversary of the book Be Here Now, and uh, which he has so 
readily yeah. identified with. And it, but in the book, I read talk, avidly in nineteen seventy four. Yeah, yeah. Right. And in the in this book, though, you talk about nowness, the mm. making of this moment, and I thought, wow, that is so connected to what Ramdas has represented all these years. Just yeah, give us a little on on. I th- what I think is absolutely necessary, and of course, one needs to use meditative practice mm-hmm. and have enough concentration to be able to embody this. But talk talk about yeah. it from your point of view. So, in in the book, I was really focused on what neuroscience is useful. So, and then we work backwards. We think about okay, be here now. <laughs> Easier said than done, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the power of now. Well, easier said than done. How do we actually do that? And what does it actually mean to really be here now experientially so mm-hmm. that we are subjectively as close as a human can be uh, within a 20th of a second to the objective emergence of the next moment of now in the expansion, the four-dimensional expansion of the Big Bang universe, which is expanding literally in three spatial dimensions and a fourth temporal dimension. So the universe's new moments of now are being created, just like new moments of space are being created. We can't detect uh, personally new moments of space because it's so vast, but Mm. astronomers can see it. But we can experience literally the creation of new time in the expansion of the universe. So what does it actually take to do that? And uh, technically, a a quick little useful practice for people is to help themselves train in the felt sense of the updating of consciousness, the the felt sense of being alerted to to the new. And before even in the next half second or so, labeling has come online and in the next second or so, what to do about it. So something has happened, something has happened, something has happened. That is the front end of the processing stream in consciousness continuously. Whether it's a new thought arising from inside or a new sound coming from the outside. Um, And I find it's really useful to deliberately meditate on um, and then in general, this feeling of the, the first half second of the stream of consciousness, in a sense, the the, the feeling of updating, the freshness, the mm. freshness of the arising moment. It's like, like a mountain spring. Uh, I write in the book, coming out in the very first instant of emergence into the air. It's sort of like the very first emergence of um, sound or sight or thought or feeling um, in the moment. And as we do that, increasingly, we strengthen those neural networks. Technically, th- th- those neural networks that are involved in updating consciousness they're called alerting networks for obvious reasons and they're lower in the brain they're very they're ancient the more modern networks that focus us on solving problems or are engaged when we kind of space out and leave the present those are much more recent Uh, so in effect we are waking down Physically, in terms of our the neuro axis, as it were, we're going deeper down into these lower networks uh, that do alerting. And one thing about them, as soon as we're alerted, it's like a circuit breaker for the default mode network, no mm. longer ruminating. We are no longer in the past or thinking about the future. Something has happened. Bingo. 
Mm-hmm. We're updating consciousness. And also when that happens, when consciousness is updated, including sometimes due to a surprise, there's a sound across the street or a person turns to you in a certain way or a sensation arises in the body. What also happens in the brain is that networks, uh, they're called allocentric, that get a sense of things as a whole without reference to little me, mm-hmm. to mini me. Yeah. That's yeah. egocentric. So it's a kind of a two for one that's really good. When you rest in being here now, you're continually living in the freshness of the present moment before suffering has had a chance to sink roots, right? It's like breaking through the sound barrier. All that crap is behind you continually. And also you get drawn naturally into this allocentric sense of everything as a whole, the vastness of all that is in the present continuously. Mm. Super Mm. good. Mm. Really, Ram Dass would have loved that. And by the way, in the last year of his life, he said to me many a time, we've got to do some workshops around science and spirituality and bring in people. Uh, And and this expression of be here now was exactly what he was thinking about, you know. Yeah. uh, So, uh, boy, I'm I'm really appreciating that. That's fantastic. Yeah. Wonderful. Um, I want to end here with, uh, I don't, I don't know if you wrote, it's called feeling safer. I don't know. I yeah. think you wrote that, right? Yeah. You wrote it. Yeah. And I think it's, it's, it's part of the steadying the mind, uh, mm. part of the book. Mm. And I think it's so apropos for right now. So you don't mind, yeah. I'm going to read it. It's, it's very much, a, it's a, a poem. It's a, uh, guided meditation. It's, a it's wonderful. It's called feeling safer. Help yourself feel as safe as you actually are in this moment, in this moment. Be aware of protections around you, such as sturdy walls or good-hearted people nearby. Notice that you can still be aware of your setting even as you let go of needless fear. Be aware of strengths inside you, helping yourself feel calmer and stronger. Be aware of any uneasiness, any unnecessary anxiety, and see if you can let that go. As you exhale, exhale, release fear. Let go of worry. Notice what it is like to feel safer, not seeking perfect safety, simply helping yourself feel as safe as you actually are. Letting go of guarding, bracing, pushing away open to reassurance, relief, feeling calmer, more peaceful, being aware of how letting go of fear helps to steady your mind. Very great, Rick. Oh, man, thank you. You can read my book (laughs) next time. I read it this time, but you can read it the next time. (laughs) Thank you. That was really lovely. Uh, Oh, it's an absolutely beautiful book. home. Uh, thank you for being here. Really. I really appreciate it. It's, I mean, the thrill of doing podcasts is meeting someone like you and just like making a friend and yeah. just having uh, talk about heartwarming. So very much so. And, uh, yeah. everybody out there, you just got to go to be here now, network.com slash mind rolling. We're going to have show notes. We're going to have, uh, you, enable you to connect with Rick's books 
et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, and then I'm going to belabor, uh, Rick, to, uh, yeah, come do some science and spirituality, will you, with us? We'll work out some workshops. Oh, workshop. I'd love to do that. We'll, we'll yeah. get some yeah. of, uh, you know, we'll get uh, our other friend uh, who you, I believe you must know, Danny Goldman. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and I know you and, and others. We'll get Joseph and Sherry. You know, we'll get them all. And okay. we'll do that. That's uh, I, I'm writing that idea down. Uh, so thanks again. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank uh, you. you being here. And uh, we'll see you all next week on Mind Rolling. Bye-bye.